Every year, millions of tourists from around the world travel to see the world's tallest trees found in the redwood forests of California. John Steinbeck, who radicalised me when I was 13 with his Grapes of Wrath, later described the, uh, the woods as stunning memories of what the world was like long ago. And that's scientifically correct because the redwoods date from the time of the dinosaurs. But for all their ancient majesty, the remaining groves represent just 4% of the original forest. From the 1850s onwards, this vast ecosystem, covering nearly 2 million acres, was logged to near oblivion in one of the most tragic acts of environmental destruction in US history. Enter Greg King, a journalist-turned-activist who's dedicated his life to the research and protection of the redwood forests. In the 80s and 90s, he led the fight to save 3,000 acres of unprotected forest from further logging. And Greg has now written a compelling history of the redwoods. It's called The Ghost Forest, Racist, Radicals and Real Estate in the Californian Redwoods. And... uh, Greg joins me from his home state. Where does your connection with these forests begin? You grew up in a forest-locking town, didn't you? Yes, and first, thank you so much for having me on. It's quite an honor. Um, Yeah, I grew up in a little town called Guerneville, which is about 60 miles north of San Francisco in Northern California. And Guerneville well before I grew up there, and even before my father and grandfather were born there, hosted one of the greatest forests that ever stood. Um, Several thousand acres on the Russian River that were some of the tallest and whitest and oldest trees ever to grow anywhere. And that entire forest was cut down before the turn of the 20th century. So I grew up understanding this lore, this missing piece in the say, universal uh, redwood forest that you described, the two million acre uh, stretch from about the center of California, but only on the coast up to the Oregon border. Uh, There was a small remnant grove that was saved called Armstrong Woods, about 400 acres of old growth redwood. And I went there thousands of times growing up. That was a playground for myself and our family. And it gave me the understanding of what was missing, but also what still stood uh, to the north of us in California. Now, I'm right, aren't I, in saying we're talking about trees that date back to the Jurassic period? Yes, very much so. Uh, The redwood species began evolving about 200 million years ago. Uh, You can still find 50 million-year-old redwood fossils throughout the Northern Hemisphere, because the redwoods survived the breakup of the great continent, uh, Pangaea, uh, and uh, survived great climatological shifts, and really migrated over millions of years, until it ended up in this pretty thin strip of fog-bound coast in California. Uh, But yes, ancient species, a living link to that ancient past. 
and they've survived earthquakes, floods, wildfires, hurricanes, and uh, the fact that human pe- humans lived amongst them. I understand the indigenous people did so, but had little impact on the trees. That's right. Native peoples lived uh, um, surrounding the redwoods, rarely inside, in some cases, especially in the southern reaches where it was a little drier and a little more light. But the northern dense redwood forests really are not the greatest human habitat. But humans lived all around the forest on the coast and in the eastern reaches of the redwood forest, you know, again, just 20 to 30 miles inland. And they would use redwoods for homes and for canoes and all kinds of things. Uh, But they really did not at all impact the ecosystem because they weren't uh, cutting down all the trees uh, for export to other states and other places in the world. They just use what they needed, which I think is a lesson for humans, especially today. Greg, what's it like walking through the trees? The redwood forest is a, a thing apart. It The trees are enormous, usually, uh, in the ancient forest, the ancient redwoods, the 4% that are left, uh, and incredibly tall and straight. And they have this beautiful ochre bark and massive dark green canopies. And so the redwood forest it very successfully blocks out a lot of light. And so what you get on the forest floor are carpets of lovely, dainty, shade-loving plants like oxalis, which looks a little like a three-leafed clover, uh, and sword ferns that grow over your head and can be parted easily like a like a door into a, you know, a, a, a room with the beads, you know. And, and you can go for miles through uh, these delicate worlds. Uh, the soils are soft, the scents are evergreen, and it's it's just a, a really miraculous place on the planet. It, it's it really and here I am kind of struggling to describe it because there's very little success in describing the redwood forest. Again, it's like stepping back 150 million years into another realm. It's not really like being anywhere else in the world. Steinbeck wasn't bad at it, but uh, okay. What are the record-breaking heights that we know about? You know, the um, rumors and a few documented cases put the tallest redwoods that ever stood at over 400 feet. Uh, There was one that was measured after it was cut down in 1886 here in Humboldt County, California, near the Oregon border, that measured 424 feet. Uh, So there were undoubtedly many examples like this on the Great Redwood Flats alongside rivers. Uh, in in the North State, the tallest tree today is 379 feet, and that's in Redwood National Park. And because we only have 4% of the ancient redwoods left, there's no doubt that there were much taller trees, you know, in these, again, these flats that were all logged off with some very minor exceptions. Well, you make the point that their top height, they would be considerably higher than, well, the Statue of Liberty. That's right. Far higher than the Statue of Liberty, uh, far higher than any other tree, uh, as as high as a 40-story building. Now, the serious logging, described as a green gold rush, began in earnest when? Redwood logging began in the 1850s, but the technology 
really didn't exist to cut, move, and mill the largest of the trees. So starting in the 1860s and especially in the 1870s, uh, technology advanced, especially with steam power for milling and moving the trees. The trees were for decades cut down by hand with axes and long saws called misery whips. Uh, and really, the 1880s saw a boom in redwood logging, especially as the wood by then had been discovered as a excellent component for industrial applications. Redwood could uh, be made into pipes that would hold oil, you know, petroleum, uh, as well as cyanide solutions for gold mining. Uh, there was also massive amounts of water moved uh, through these redwood pipes that didn't rot because it had these properties, the redwood lumber, that really um, withstood the rotting that all other woods uh, endured. Uh, and, you know, for instance, a lot of redwood was shipped to Australia because of the moist conditions in the subtropical areas there uh, and due to the many pests that would destroy other woods, but not redwood. And so many uh, tropical countries, uh, you know, pre people there purchased redwood. Uh, a lot of redwood went to Hawaii. Um, it just had these unique properties. So the industrial uses were discovered uh, as redwood was used in, in the 1860s and 70s. It really picked up in the 1880s and 90s. And after that, uh, the liquidation of the redwoods uh, proceeded exponentially. Well, the U.S. Congress willfully privatised them, didn't it, with the Timber and Stone Act of 1878? Yes, the Timber and Stone Act was one of three uh, viable uh, acts. That is, um, they were violated uh, very often, and, and most Western forests in the United States were taken up by large corporations illegally by the illegal consolidation of these land grants. The Timber and Stone Act of 1878 was sort of the, the last straw for the Redwoods because it basically allowed that. I mean, not legally, but it, the provisions of the act were so weak to stop violators that, that it didn't. The previous acts were the Homestead Act and the Morrill Act. So those three acts together um, resulted in the complete privatization of the entire redwood biome by 1900 in California. The law for, for all the acts really was that you could get 160 acres and you had to improve it, quote unquote. You had to generally cut down the trees and start farming. Uh, and you had to erect a structure for living in. And there would be inspectors, allegedly, that would make sure you were, you know, conforming to these rules. Um, but everybody was bought off with some exceptions, but up and down the ladder of authority from the local federal land agent, you know, who lived, say, in Humboldt County, uh, up to the state representative of the federal government, right up to the feds in Washington, D.C., um, the bribes were they're well documented, well documented. Um, there are uh, receipts for bribes received by congressmen, uh, but basically they were virtually never prosecuted. The largest single theft of redwood land by a large conglomerate, a Scottish syndicate that worked with uh, people in uh, New York uh, on Wall Street and in San Francisco and in Humboldt County, 
the largest um, theft was 124,000 acres of the absolute best redwood land left in the public domain. And I covered that quite a bit in the book. I'm talking to Greg King, and Greg's new book is called The Ghost Forest, Racists, Radicals, and Real Estate in the California Redwoods, and it's published by Hachette. The history of redwood forestry is uh, tied up with American railroads. Tell me about their impact. The impact of the railroads was total. Anywhere a railroad went, like today with actual roads for vehicles, uh, a place could be utterly transformed. In terms of the redwoods, if you couldn't get the material out from the deep forest, then you couldn't get it at all. And so in Humboldt County, say, for instance, again, which was extremely remote uh, back in the 19th century, well into the 20th century, uh, there were local railroads that stretched up these watersheds. Uh, there was not a railroad leading from San Francisco to Humboldt County until 1914. So prior to that, redwood lumber was shipped out of Humboldt Bay uh, there in the, near the county seat of Eureka. Um, but everywhere in the Redwood Range, everywhere on the continent, the railroads were essential to exploit the resources that were there. Um, but especially with the Redwoods, you couldn't move those things very far without steam power and wheels. The railroads also, of course, brought tourists to the Redwoods, and they were pretty upset with what they saw. Yes, that was sort of the beginning of the Save the Redwoods League, because the first train to Humboldt County, to the whole northern part of the Redwood Belt, came in in 1914. And so for the first time, the lay public could easily get up there. Before, you had to take a treacherous um, journey by ship over th across the ocean, uh, 200 miles of very rough ocean to get there. And it, it was not a slam dunk. It was, you know, anything could happen out there. And it often did. A lot of people died uh, moving around the Pacific in the 19th century. Um, so the railroad eliminated that risk and allowed people to come north really on a whim uh, whenever they wanted. Uh, and then compounding that for redwood producers was the first road that came up into Humboldt County in 1918. So now a newly mo mobile public with their automobiles could tour up there from the burgeoning Bay Area and see what was going on for themselves. And there was a great need to hide what was going on in the Redwoods from the public because uh, by the turn of the 20th century, the public was up in arms over Redwood logging. It's a horror show. So the Save the Redwood League was an early form of greenwashing. Yes. Um, in the book, I describe it as the earliest and most successful in U.S. history, a form of greenwashing. Uh, and so the league formed 1917. It really took off in 1919 uh, when the first board of directors was gathered and it uh, incorporated as a nonprofit organization in 1920 and then set out to a create screens of giant redwoods along the road so that people while driving along could not see the clear cutting beyond 
and B, to step in and prevent actual redwood preservation attempts, which occurred over and over again through the 20th century, right up until the end of the century when Headwaters Forest, which was the last great ancient redwood grove still standing outside of parks and which I named and discovered in 1987, Save the Redwoods League opposed even saving that very last grove. Racists. Tell me about the link to the eugenics movement. Yes, the League was founded by three very prominent eugenicists, white supremacists, uh, supposedly to save the Redwoods. Now, there is also, uh, just as a tangent here, which is a very big tangent, the kind of inherent racism that drove the American expansion across the West, uh, where there were no people living there, right? Um, just these savages who had to be eliminated. They were native peoples were not considered human beings, and you know, for economic reasons, basically, to take their land. Uh, but you had in 1917, and for the first uh, 50 years of the organization's uh, operation, Save the Redwoods League, the hierarchy of this organization was led by white supremacists who were so notorious in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s that their theories and uh, proposals for how to deal with, quote, defective human beings, including euthanasia, were taken up by the Nazi government in Germany during the 1930s. And so the final solution in Germany was based in large part on programs developed by the American eugenicists. Tell me, tell me about this unpleasant chap called uh, Wigginston Creed. Wigginton Creed, the great Pulp Fiction name. Uh, Wigginton Creed was a, a Bay Area native, if you will. He was born and raised in the Bay Area, and he um, went to the University of California and graduated in 1898. Uh, and studied in New York uh, under Darius Ogden Mills, the great gold rush banker. One of the, He was the wealthiest man in California for a long time until he went to Manhattan and came back and he married the daughter of one of the world's biggest redwood lumber barons, C.A. Hooper. That was in 1904. And he, in 1914, inherited the Hooper fortune when C.A. Hooper died. And so he became one of the greatest purveyors of redwood lumber and redwood lands. He was a broker of redwood lands in the world. And then in 1919, he joined the founding directorship of Save the Redwoods League. In 1920, he was appointed president of Pacific Gas and Electric, which at the time was the world's greatest consumer of redwood stave pipes to power their turbines. So all industry in California depended on the Sierra Nevada dams and the redwood tubes, these great miles long snaking giant redwood pipes to uh, turn those turbines. Wigington Creed in 1920 became the greatest, one of the greatest purveyors and one of the greatest consumers of Redwood products, and he was at the head of this Save the Redwoods League. Greg, let's uh, leap forward to uh, to the 1980s when you were a young journal. How did you go from reporting on logging to becoming a tree-climbing activist? 
Well, that was a almost rapid evolution. Uh, you know, I was in love with the Redwoods, having grown up with them all my life. And I graduated from the University of California in Santa Cruz in 1985 and immediately went back to my hometown of Guerneville and very quickly got a job at the local weekly newspaper. At the same time, I rented a house at the end of a road and it was overlooking a lovely Redwood Grove. It was second growth, but it was very old. It was 100 years old and it was right on the banks of the Russian River. And within a month after I got to this house, after I rented it, uh, Louisiana Pacific Corporation started logging that Redwood Grove. And so as a journalist, I investigated it. By the end of that year, Houston-based Maxam Corporation had taken over the Pacific Lumber Company in Humboldt County. And it was uh, the largest holder of ancient Redwood left in private hands. And so I started investigating that. And what really turned my career path around, because I had just accepted in mid-1986 um, the editorship of a newspaper. It was a career goal. And then I went and visited and, and walked into one of the groves that was being targeted for liquidation logging by Max Sam. And it, everything changed in that moment. I was stunned and amazed, and and there was there's really no words. It was just a feeling. It was this feeling. I knew I couldn't take the job. I immediately, I even told my friend I was standing with, I cannot take the job. And I, sure enough, called up the publisher and turned down the job. And the month later, moved to Humboldt County, understanding that this was it. This was the very last ancient Redwood left outside of parks. And it was critically important biologically. I occasionally give an award to an interviewee for uh, achievements above and beyond the call of duty, and uh, you're going to get yourself a koala stamp with the gum leaf cluster. It seems an appropriate award given that the koala and its habitat are also imperiled. And in giving that award to you, what future, what does the future hold for the Redwoods? That's a very good question. And first of all, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really honored by that. Um, the, the future of the Redwoods is insecure. Uh, about half of the Redwood biome today, almost a million acres, is held by just two companies, Green Diamond Resource Company and the uh, Fisher Companies, which um, are Humboldt Redwood Company and Mendocino Redwood Company. The Fisher family owns the Gap stores and Banana Republic and that sort of thing. They're billionaires and they own a lot of redwood. And so they, both those companies log heavily and spray herbicides. And it's really a threat to the overall, the long-term uh, recovery of what is a very damaged redwood ecosystem. Uh, the parks, you know, there have been thousands of acres of cutover lands added to the parks. There's 80,000 acres of ancient redwood preserved, and that's it. And then another uh, almost 200,000 acres of, of cutover land, second growth, that's also preserved. And so that's a good thing. But in terms of really habitat, and, and that's usually where I like to steer the conversation, is to the ecological importance of these groves and the, the wider ecosystem. So those two companies need to come to the table and really negotiate for the acquisition of that million acres by the public, get it back into public hands. Greg, congratulations on your work, on your activism and on your new book. Greg's uh, book is called The Ghost Forests, 
Racists, Radicals and Real Estate in the Californian Redwoods and it's published by Hachette. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.